This is an Eye on Annapolis special update. Well, joining us today is Dr. Brian Marks. He is the executive director of the Entrepreneurship and Innovation Program and the coordinator of the Pompeii College of Business at New Haven University in New Haven, Connecticut. On top of that, he is an attorney, but we're not going to hold that against him too much. But Dr. Marks is a nationally known expert on the economy and how it relates specifically to retail bankruptcies, unemployment, the PPP loans recently doled out under the CARES Act, and that is exactly why Dr. Marks joins us today to discuss the retail environment here in Anne Arundel County, including our larger retail stores, as well as some of the ones on Main Street. Welcome, and first of all, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, John, thank you for inviting me, and I'm happy to talk with you. Uh, being a former resident of Maryland, um, some, there are some days I wish I was back with you in Maryland and enjoying uh, the environs um, there. Well, you should have, you should have been here this weekend. This weekend was spectacular. I can't remember a better weekend. Four days of sunshine, low humidity. You would never know it was Maryland. It was <laughs> it was crazy. What brought you out of Maryland up to Connecticut? Well, uh, in uh, the 1990s, I moved to Connecticut to work in the software industry as a chief administrative officer and general counsel. So I've been a great deal of my career has actually been in either the commercial sector or government and uh, in academia. But now I'm full time at the Pompeii College of Business okay. at, at the University of New Haven. So software industry brought me up to Connecticut. Family brought me up to Connecticut. But we're in a mobile society. We move a lot. So uh, I always say home is where my wife is located and, and she's in Connecticut. So, so that's where you home. are. Yeah. Even when I worked abroad. Uh, and internationally, she was here in Connecticut and I traveled back and forth. You know, it's funny. You talk about home is where you're, you said your wife, but I mean, I, they're featuring some back to school pictures today because it's sort of the first day of school for us here and where the kids are. And apparently there are a couple of them that are still on vacation. And like, so there's one kid that's on a balcony overlooking some crystal clear blue water that, you know, is nowhere near the Chesapeake Bay. It's way down probably somewhere in Florida. And it's like first day of school. I said, oh, you know, home is where the Wi-Fi is, you know? Yeah. And, and in some senses, you're right. I had some students this summer when we were doing real time synchronous Zoom classes. I, I didn't realize that New Haven had palm trees and um, I had a, a couple of students who are actually outside under the cabana. But I have to give them credit. Even though they were in that environment, they were fully connected and fully engaged for our courses on entrepreneurship and innovation. And who would have thought this would have been possible 30 years ago? Unbelievable. Well, and, and, and you know, it, it's interesting that you say that. Who would have thought it would have been possible? And that's what has helped us weather this storm of the um, COVID-19 pandemic. We are in a very different technological place than the last pandemic. And, you know, many people keep on referring back to the early 1900s, but we had a pandemic in the late 1960s um, that lasted about 18 months. And we were in an economic recession and people arguably may have had to take greater risks to help the economy function where today, we're able to do a lot of things because of the technological innovation, the ability to connect real time, engage in these discussions, even in the classroom. I'm able to engage in real time 
classroom discussions as if I'm in the classroom, except in this case, they don't see me trip over my own feet or drop my marker, that they actually um, see me from maybe the waist up or more because often when I'm teaching, I'm still standing up in my office. I admire everybody that can do that. I personally learn better on in person as opposed to visually on, on a screen, but it's it's phenomenal. I mean, I'm seeing kids that are thriving and um, I, it's it's just a wonderful place that we live in now at this point. Yeah, well, and technology has had a significant impact. And to your point, uh, if a student is not paying attention, I could see them on screen. I take the same approach as if I'm in the classroom. Duly noted. Let's get into it. I mean, you are an expert on retail. We have seen bleeding going on here in Maryland and probably all across the country and world, I'd imagine, on the retail uh, aspect. But how bad is it at this point for retail, for a retailer? Well, let's have some context. And it's great. We've been talking about technology and what was going on 50 years ago. And if we move forward and come to today, retail for many years now has been suffering. We have seen consolidations. We've had seen sales. We've seen bankruptcies. But we move forward. COVID-19 was a public is, I shouldn't say was, because it still is, a public health crisis that required, because of the environment, stay-at-home orders and other social distancing restrictions that basically compounded already pre-existing issues for retail. We talked about technology, and the biggest issue, among other things, was how would the box stores, the physical bricks and mortar stores, be able to effectively compete in the online environment? And many of these stores, the box stores, needed to transform and figure out how to operate in this world that requires both maybe a physical presence, but also an effective online presence. And what happened here is once we're staying at home and we're not going out, people needed to, albeit in a reduced way, uh, engage in purchasing, uh, had resorted to online. So consumers got very comfortable. What is the consequence of all that? So the box stores, the physical online locations, saw a reduction in demand, plain and simple. So They were facing debt service issues already and lease liabilities for their property locations. And then adding to it the COVID-19 pandemic, which shift the demand curve to the left, which really reduced revenues for those box locations that put pressure on these firms' ability to service their debt, to pay their lease liabilities, as well as put pressure on to what extent they could invest and transform their business in an effective way for online operations when you have certain firms operating very effectively online and providing the goods and services that many of us wanted. And that was another one of the questions that I was going to ask is that we had a real a, a jewelry store here in town that closed down in January, way before COVID was even a word that we really knew. And they cited Amazon. They said the Everybody is buying online. I mean, we can go to www.zales.com and get a diamond or a bracelet or a watch or whatever it may be. That's the reason that they cited. I mean, it may or may not be the full reason, but Amazon obviously has taken a huge ding out of retail during this COVID pandemic. 
Uh, I mean, they couldn't even keep up with shipping for a period of time. They were restricting things to essentials and, and everything else. So I guess my question is, is as we come out of this, whenever we do come out of this, because we are still in it, is this a permanent change into the psyche of the consumer now? Are we now going to go, hey, I need new toner for my printer back here. Oh, let me go to Amazon and order it and it'll be here tomorrow. Or do I think, oh, let me swing by Office Depot and pick it up on the way home? So, John, unfortunately, we broke up a little bit, but I think I I know what you're referring to here. And that is, and quite simply, uh, have consumer practices as a result of COVID-19 pandemic change in such a way that we are going to feel comfortable basically purchasing things online as opposed to the physical tactile experience? And the answer is actually, I expect just like we expect in certain other industries, this certainly has pushed the needle and moved us more in the direction of feeling comfortable with the online transaction. Just like, and I have to tell you, in the theatrical business, in movies, studios, and box office, you know, the bricks and mortar theater, people have gotten pretty comfortable with streaming. Do they want, will they no longer want that in-theater experience? No, there's a social aspect, but I think we'll see a consolidation and transformation in that industry. And I have to say, in retail, in our bricks and mortar, that was ahead of the curve. So, yes, firms were already in a precarious situation. We can say it's Amazon, but really it's the decision-making process. Were we standing still and feeling... I have my bricks and mortar. I'm here. They will come. And for the most part, that's how many retail operations survived. Albeit their balance sheets may have been tenuous, but that's how they survived. There are small operations that we're looking to transform earlier on and provide an online presence, which is highly competitive. Yeah. You're not going to compete with Amazon head on head or Walmart or Target or anything like that. And you know, there are a lot of small businesses, now we're sliding down a little bit into Main Street here, that don't have an online presence. Uh, they, they, they sit there and they say, well, I've got a Facebook page. Isn't that enough? And it's like, well, don't, don't play with somebody else's sandbox is my advice to them all the time. But no, it's not. And there were a lot of people scrambling to get that online presence. I mean, we still had the post office, thankfully, that could ship stuff. Right. And, and the, the post office does ship a lot of things. Look, for, on, uh, for bricks and mortar operations to survive, uh, they need to address any debt they have and their lease liabilities. They need to address the demand side as well. How are they going to address that demand side becomes really important. In the absence of a vaccine, people have to start viewing social distancing. People have to feel comfortable that the retail location that they're visiting is a safe, secure environment for them to walk into. It doesn't mean some people won't be willing to take certain risks. That's part of everyday life. But if people are uncomfortable, then they're going to revert online. So that's an obstacle local businesses need to address. They also need to try to do community reach out to say, support your local vendors. Right. Right. And, And so we have that component as well. And those local operations, besides online, since they're local, in the restaurant industry, we saw a transformation in local communities, curbside pickup. Yep. Right? 
uh, let's of, of a complete meal or curbside pickup of the ingredients for you to make our meal at your home. Necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, I was just briefly here. I was asked, do we see the end of the small local business? We won't have any bricks and mortar. Do we see the end of large box retail? And all I tell people is it's not the end, but it is a transformation that's going to be required. We may not see as much floor space as we did before. It may be more distribution space in the back. Right, because they're they've got more UPS trucks waiting out back than they do customers waiting in the front. That would be, well, yes. it's, I was, I was talking to a restaurateur in town and asked them about how they did in COVID. I said, Oh, I guess, you know, I, I'm assuming that your business got really hammered. And he said, well, actually it shifted. And it's just to your point. He said, we used to do maybe 5%, 2%, whatever it may have been of this carry out, you know, curbside type of a thing. You know, we'd send four doggy bags home a night. Now we're sending 70% of our business with doggy bags home. You know, they're coming in, they're picking up the doggy bag and, and they just said it's, it's totally changed. But yes, they do have this big footprint where they had all these tables in where they could have, you know, 150 people in the restaurant, which is pretty much going to waste at this point um, unless they can get outside. So I, I think you're absolutely right in that you need to figure out how to manage your costs, renegotiate any kind of leases, obviously, that you have that uh, and hopefully you have a landlord that's reasonable to be able to see that. Um, and, and I look at some of the larger stuff here locally, we've had Nordstrom closing, Sears closed, uh, Macy's and Penny's I think are teetering. And I think, yes. you know, I think, I think on tomorrow morning you could open up the yeah. news and see that both of them or one of them may be gone. We've had some medium retail closed and many, many smaller, the mom and pops. Yeah. So, I mean, Lord and Taylor went from chapter 11 now is going to liquidation. Yep. Right. So we are these these closings are dramatic and and in some senses daunting, especially when you put it in the context of some of the unemployment numbers we're facing. So the real question is, what's the next step? And I think that's really so for some of these firms and we've seen it, many of them have gone ahead and declared bankruptcy. And in this covid-19 pandemic, in some senses, the ability to declare bankruptcy, seek Chapter 11 reorganization, is a, is a strategic move. And the reputational impact of declaring bankruptcy may not be as problematic in light of all the other firms that are doing the same thing because of this public health crisis. I mean, it's a way to mask a little bit some of the ills that existed before that one could say, you're, you were making poor strategic decisions. You were making poor business decisions. Now you have Chapter 11 allowing for this strategic move to allow a firm to deal with their lease liability, deal with their de uh, debt structure, and therefore may become meaner and leaner and more effective on a going forward basis. Well, that's exactly what Nordstrom said when they closed down the store here. They said, we're you know, focusing, we want to focus on our online activities. And I'm thinking, well, you know, Nordstrom is such a very high touch, very high, highly personalized service. How is this going to, how is this going to jive with the customers? And and I, that remains to be seen. I mean, they have not declared bankruptcy, but they have pulled out of here. They've abandoned a huge space in our local shopping mall. It'll be very interesting to see how they're doing it. And one thing that I've noticed retail wise 
is that if I want to go into a Best Buy or if I want to even go into a little mom and pop store for a, a battery, they may not have it because they're really shrinking their inventories and they're focusing, they're saying, well, we can order it online and have it delivered to the store and you can pick it up. That's a curbside pickup, if you will. It eliminates their inventory levels or order it online, it'll deliver to your house or something. And, and they really seem to be pushing people to the online um, just because, I mean, obviously there's a huge cost in maintaining inventory. Well, and, and, that, and that's exactly the cost of carry for the small operations in particular is, is problematic. So we are going to see that aspect. Cost of carry is problematic. So just-in-time delivery is becoming more prevalent, um, even, even more so today. Um, and, and yes, we, we, we're seeing some of these operations trying to figure out how could we do same-day delivery. Order it online and we'll deliver it to you before the day's out. Yeah, depending on where you are. I mean, Amazon does, you know, I think in New York, I think they're doing, what, two or three hour delivery. And it's, it's that instant gratification. It's sort of the checkout line in the grocery store. It's like, yeah, give me that give me that Hershey bar. But people still, some people and many of us still need that tactile experience. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, I will totally buy a toner for my printer online because, you know, it, toner's toner. But I would never buy this shirt online because I, I want to look at it and see what it looks like. Do I like it? Does it feel cheesy? Whatever. And it, it's just strange. I, I wonder what the future is for the malls, though. And, and they were such a huge thing going up in the 70s when they first sort of really came into vogue. You know, they expanded. They were just these the entertainment complexes. And we've got one here locally that is up for auction next Monday, actually. And the one here in Annapolis has undergone a, a real transformation. I mean, obviously, we've got retailers that are bailing left and right, but we now have operating in there a 7-Eleven, a library, a health club, and just recently, the local branch of the SPCA opened up a satellite office. It's a yes. re reinvention. Yes, and, and that's, one could say, this accelerated this transformation of, of the economy or this aspect or component of the economy. Look, malls, if we, if we think of it, Malls relied on anchor stores to draw people to the facility. And we're not only talking anchor stores, many malls also had box office theaters. So here we had two major anchors for a mall. Now, because of the shift in demand, you know, those stay at home, the uncertainty we feel, even if we're open, just because you're open, will people return? No, there's that concern of needing what do we have? Testing, monitoring, social distancing, why we're waiting for a vaccine. And once we have a vaccine, it will take time. So you have real businesses needing to operate over the next 12 to 18 months. They're not able to do so with their current cost structures. If mall operators are not pushing along and trying to agree to renegotiated financial terms and conditions, it, it could push many operations over the edge, especially as you see the big boxes. You know, you went through that list: J.C. Penney, Lord and Taylor, J. Crew, Neiman, Brooks Brothers, Declare, bankruptcy. You have box theaters not drawing in the people. It's a cascading effect for the other stores within that mall. So, a transformation of mall facilities is required. COVID-19 may have accelerated it, but some of the other things, you enumerated a great list, 
we're going to see healthcare operations and facilities move into some of these spaces. So if I were investing, uh, I would not necessarily look at a mall as typically retail. I'm going to look at it. How can it be a destination, which is what malls tried to do, like the Mall of America. But if people can't arrive there, especially over the next 12 to 18 months, what other things could take the place or what restructuring of the facility do I need to do to make this space, this facility generate revenue? And so we may see assisted living facilities moving on to properties of this nature and other healthcare services as, as a way to deal with these massive amounts of retail locations that need transformation. We also have seen even Amazon has looked at some of these locations and said, oh, I could build a distribution center there or a mini distribution center. So in the Midwest, Amazon has actually in negotiations or may have closed a deal with a mall operator for facilities at various malls to facilitate storage of inventory and then also expedited delivery. We'll be very curious to look and see what the retail environment looks like 15 years from now. Uh, you know, I, it, it really has been very stagnant, I would say, since, I mean, we got online that came in, but really from probably the 40s to the 50s, it was like, you know, you go to a store, you look for a piece of merchandise, you, you feel it, you fondle it, you try it on, and you, and you give the merchant the money, and you take your change and your, pro- and your product, and you leave. And the malls, that was a, you know, consumerism. You went in there, and, uh, you know, you had Santa's lap, you had the, the Easter rabbit and, and the stores that you shopped at. And now it's it's really changing. I mean, I, when they put a 7-Eleven in there, I was like, that's just very strange. Uh, I, felt right. really, I felt really bad for them because they were considered an essential business because they supplied food and the mall closed down right after this whole thing. So they're there in the middle of this mall and, <laughs> that nobody's going to. And who would go to a 7-Eleven in the middle of a mall if there's not other things going on? I mean, the other things, you know, there are property taxes and sales tax revenue implications for this as well, especially as things are online, I, I expect many state and local governments are going to need to re-examine how they generate revenue from alternative retail operations. Because as people buy elsewhere, the money isn't being spent locally, so to speak. And how do we how do we generate that revenue? Well, there are reporting requirements. We know that. And as an example, Amazon will charge sales tax. And it has to get remitted. But a lot of local municipalities relied on local sales tax payments to help support the services. So it is, you know, we could say a rippling effect, a cascading effect throughout the supply chain, throughout the consumer chain, throughout the government chain. And, and in fact, we may see a reduction in government employees. Look, unemployment. Look where we are today. In April, nationally, we were at 14.7%. There was a misclassification error, so we were actually closer to 20%. The latest report says we are at unemployment of 8.2% unemployment. I believe that's the number. Remember, That's a very significant recovery. It's, It's a significant recovery, but what was often missed, and we're seeing things move in the right direction, is the number of permanent job losses increased by over 500,000. That is a signal of weakness. So we're seeing an improvement. We had to expect an improvement as we reopen. It was certainly not going to be a V-shaped recovery. 
that would help all retail operations. But we're seeing permanent job loss increase to over 3 million permanent job losses, 3.4 million. Wow. That the, the direction is wrong. And so why we can all feel cautiously optimistic about the decline in the national unemployment rate, which is probably closer to 9% when you deal with the misclassification error, the latest one, we're okay saying things appear to be getting better as we're reopening. Of course, everything's tenuous for two other reasons. One, what's going to happen next with COVID-19? And two, if we have to re-engage our stay-at-home orders, what does that mean for employment? If there are no jobs, there's nowhere for me to go to work, right? Because we're staying home. Right. That will have an impact on retail as well. So we have the stay-at-home creating complications, that re-emergence. And the fact that Congress and the president can't seem to get on the same page for another relief package. And and they're arguing and debating various aspects of that. Meanwhile, Main Street is definitely struggling. And the payroll protection program, which was designed to help Main Street, and an economic report came out from the Council of Economic Advisors, I I believe, uh, last month, noting the benefits of these things. And, and there's no doubt there were benefits, but it didn't provide the relief for Main Street to the extent anyone hoped. And then the Federal Reserve tried to do things, one, with interest rates, but got very creative to create a special purpose vehicle, which limits what they could do based on their charter, and issued very few loans to what they called their Main Street lending program, which was far from being a Main Street lending program. It was really more for intermediate and, and mid-sized businesses, right. not for Main Street. So that program was a misnomer, uh, but it's turning out not to be particularly successful uh, as reported when the data came out from the Boston Fed as far as the extent to which loans have been issued. Well, I know the PPP has been moderately successful. I mean, it was rolled out so fast and people really didn't know what it was doing initially. And it was, okay, we got to pay for payroll. Otherwise it turns into a loan. And then the, the deadline was, I can't remember the specific dates, but the deadline was earlier. Then they extended it when they realized that COVID wasn't going away in 15 minutes. It's really been a nightmare for a lot of small businesses. Other small businesses have really profited from that. We have a local restaurant group that owned two franchise locations. And as soon as COVID hit, they shut down the franchise locations, which pretty much everybody had to do. And they said, we're going to reevaluate what our business is. And they developed a different concept of a restaurant. They took out the two PPP loans for, and I think it was a million dollar cap or $2 million cap. But they took they took two loans out to the cap, one for each of the restaurants. And they totally renovated and they bought, and they bought new furniture and fixtures and everything else. And they're ready to open up these new concepts. And I'm like, there is somebody that's somewhat brilliant. I mean, where are you going to get a 1% loan because they're not going to spend 70% of it on 75% of it on salary. Where are you going to get a 1% loan from a bank in the middle of a pandemic going into a recession? And, right. you know. yeah. and they were very fortunate that they had the wherewithal to do that because a lot of businesses did not have the wherewithal and therefore the, the money, the first installment, so to speak, ran out and people weren't able to access it. But there is no doubt. I mean, as I mentioned, in August 2020, the the Council of Economic Advisors actually issued a report noting 
the benefits of the PPP and other economic responses to the pandemic. There's no doubt there's a benefit, especially, especially if you think of it, if, if there are no jobs to go to and people don't have income, they're not going to spend on, on anything. And that further exacerbates the problem. Well, personal consumption was down over 30 percent. I was just reading that this morning. They were saying that more people are saving more money during this thing than pretty much, I mean, decades. Right. Given that we are uncertain about what the next several months to a year is going to bring and what that means for all sorts of different employment opportunities, most individual households are going to, to the extent they can, not engage in personal consumption that they may have otherwise engaged in. Sure. And and that becomes almost a perfect storm, an absence of a government relief package, the end of supplemental unemployment, sure. even though employment hasn't been extended, that puts pressure on state governments as well. You've got the demand issue coming up. We We have a perfect storm here and unfortunately, if we don't move rapidly, those permanent job losses, the longer this goes on, those permanent job losses will will stay in place. And so we'll see that number, even though directionally we're seeing unemployment come down, even when you count for the misclassification, it is coming down. It's the permanent job losses, yes. which then could suggest a further transformation of our economy. Well, I'll tell you one thing I'm curious about is where do you see in with your experience and expertise, who are the most vulnerable of the small businesses? I mean, is it small businesses, medium businesses, or is it the large, you know, the larger corporations? And do you have any tips to help them out? Well, I mean, certainly I'll, I'll say as, as we witnessed in large box retail, no one would have thought a, a J. Crew, a Neiman Marcus, would be headed towards bankruptcy or Lord and Taylor, right? right? The storied retail operation would have not only gone into chapter 11, but liquidation now. Everyone's vulnerable and anyone who thinks they're not vulnerable uh, may become complacent and complacency usually leads to disaster. So we have the big side of the equation and then the small operations, those who operated lean and mean and were maybe able to transform their operations at the start of this pandemic w- will emerge stronger for it. But as time goes on, we will see reopening. We'll get comfortable again as a community. In one sense, memories are short, live, and, and, and that as we move forward, and we have our vaccine, and we don't have this continual of news broadcasting that shows how many uh, cases of COVID-19, how many deaths in the world, and how many U.S. cases, and how many deaths in the world. Once that goes away, it, it will all recede in our memories. It's the business operators who lived through it are going to be cautious. So who's vulnerable? We're all vulnerable. Higher education is vulnerable. Public school, private education is vulnerable. You name it. 
This pandemic has been universal. It is very different than the Great Recession of 2008. Do you see any bright spots in this thing? Well, uh, bright spots. Well, one thing I do expect is businesses who are thinking strategically and about the long run, they're going to look at their asset allocation, their physical asset allocations, and see how malleable those assets could actually be, be redeployed in in the event of another dislocation akin to a pandemic such as COVID-19, because some people are reporting we can expect other public health crises over time. What firms may start doing is saying, how do I redeploy? We've seen some uh, distilleries redeploy assets in such a way to make hand sanitizers. Right. We've seen some plastic shops redeploy to make face shields. It's those things, assets. The other thing is this pandemic has shown we may see a return to more manufacturing than what we would have otherwise seen here in the United States than abroad because of supply chain issues. But I want to caution caution everyone. Just because it may be returning doesn't mean we're going to see an explosion of manufacturing jobs because what we are going to probably see is a lot of automation. And so those are some of the things I would expect here in Connecticut to the extent Connecticut is very much where I am currently living involved in the healthcare industry and pharmaceutical. In fact, we have an operation here in Connecticut. The manufacturing of some pharmaceutical drugs are actually expanding here in Connecticut for the delivery as opposed to being manufactured outside the United States or elsewhere in the country. If you're involved in advanced manufacturing, we'll see those things. Really kind of sad when you look at some of the things. I know McDonald's has recently gone through most of their stores and they put in the self-serve kiosks to eliminate the counter folk that are that are helping you out there. Well, and, and some of that was driven by wages. I talked to franchisees myself, and when the whole discussion was occurring, increases in minimum wage, some of the local franchisees of chains were looking and saying, in what ways can we reduce our costs of operation? And some of that was self-serve as opposed to service by an employee. Right. What could get interesting, though, is in light of this pandemic, how many people are going to feel comfortable going up to the soda pop machine that someone else just previously used, some stranger you don't know? Well, that's that's true, though. I, I didn't even consider this push to 15 for minimum wages because I know here in Maryland we've raised the minimum wage. And there was a gentleman that owned a franchise of a thing called My Favorite Muffin, I think it was. And it was just a little sliver of a store. And it was it was a $5 muffin. And it was, you know, he paid a baker and it was himself and his wife and I think, you know, a couple teenagers to do it. And when the government was looking to raise the rates, he was like, you know, you're going to put me out of business. There is no way that I can sell a $10 muffin. And in order to pay somebody $15, I need to sell a $10 muffin. And I don't have the option to add in T-shirts and, you know, sell alcohol and all the other stuff. So, you know, what are you going to do? And they said, he said, if you raise this, I'm I'm shutting down. And they they voted to raise it. And he, they, he shut it down like the next day. It was interesting. Well, I think the retail landscape is... Uh, 
is really changed. It's going to be very interesting to see how it evolves over the next uh, six months, one year, 18 months, or probably five years as we as we move forward. If you are willing, I would love to touch base with you and maybe sometime down the future and just sort of Monday morning quarterback to see where we are. Uh, John, I'd be happy to come back. It, 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 I always say, if I can remember the future, <laughs> boy, what a, what a wonderful place we'd all be in. So it would be nice to come back look back at our discussion and see where we are. Uh, you know, we all want to forecast and predict the future because we have to base it on a lot of data and also expectations. In this case, you know, we're dealing with a public health crisis and certainly social distancing is crucial. At the university I'm in, we're back in class, which is great. I, I am ecstatic to be on the ground in some of my classes. And my students are highly respectful of the fact that they come in, they show me all as well. They're wearing a mask. They're wearing them properly. I'm wearing a mask. I use a little microphone so I can project through the mask so they don't have to struggle to hear me. Those things are all good things, and we all want to be back in school, no matter what level you're at. But it has to be a safe, secure environment where we can feel confident that all that is transpiring is, is one where we can focus on the learning and not have in the modern characterization of the sort of Damocles hanging over our head that almost instantaneously um, will wind up shutting down. Shutting so I'd down. like to be cautiously optimistic. I think people have to do the, quote, right thing. We have to be evidence-based. We have to be science-based, if you will. As a result of that, we are going to see these transformations, whether it's by regulation and mandate or businesses realizing the only way a customer will come back. It's not simply if I build it, they will come. I need to build it, that physical location, and give my customer confidence, and comfort that I am doing the right things, not only for this pandemic, but for what may come in the future and be flexible enough to deal with what's in the future. Dr. Brian Marks with the Pompeii College of Business at New Haven University in Connecticut. I thank you very much. And maybe next time when you come down and maybe in your in Maryland, or uh, we can maybe do this in person instead of on FaceTime. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And I could say I probably won't get down to Bethesda I'll be, I'll be down in Baltimore where my, my daughter and her husband now lives. So my wife and I are actually looking forward to the opportunity when things can open up comfortably to hop in the car and take a quick drive down because it is just down the road. If you are down in the area, please feel free to give me a call. I'd love to come and either shake hands or bump elbows or whatever the, the social protocol happens to be at the time. I appreciate your time this afternoon and uh, good luck in your new semester. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it and happy to be back. This has been an update from Ion Annapolis. Please visit us at ionanapolis.net. Follow us on Facebook at All Annapolis and on Twitter at Ion Annapolis. And if you haven't subscribed to the Daily News Brief podcast, go for it. And all of your local news will be delivered to your phone, tablet, or smart device by 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday.